Hello, and welcome back to the Global in the Granite State, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, I am Tim Horgan, your host for this program and the executive director of the council. Thank you to all of our longtime listeners who have made this series so successful, continuing to prove that people do care about deeply understanding critical issues from around the world. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. We hope that you enjoy this conversation and will go back and listen to our past episodes. Many of those discussions remain relevant today. As a community-supported, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire thanks you and all of our members, donors, supporters, and sponsors for your efforts to make our work possible. We need two things to make an impact on the world. First, we need a strong audience of global citizens who are willing to have their perspectives challenged. And second, we need generous supporters to make sure we can continue our work. If you are not yet a member or supporter of our organization, please visit wacnh.org today to show us the value you find in our efforts. A huge thank you to our sponsor, McLean Middleton, for your dedicated support of this program. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Thank you for all you do to make the world a better place. Now, on to our conversation. July 26th of this year, the Presidential Guard in Niger turned on their democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, two years after the first democratic, peaceful transfer of power in the post-colonial era. At the head of the fifth coup in Niger's history was General Chiani, who had been tasked for the past 10 years with keeping the president safe, but now had decided it was time for the military to take power. As things have progressed, President Bazoum and his family are under house arrest and under investigation for treason, which could end in death sentence. The story of how Niger went from a beacon of democracy in West Africa to another story of military elites deciding to speak for the people is all too familiar in this region. We spoke with two experts, both of whom have direct connections to New Hampshire, to better understand what is happening, why it is happening, and what it means for the world. So the initial declaration of the junta included justifications such as the governance of the country. They mentioned corruption. And obviously they mentioned the security dimension, which really is shared by countries of the Sahel region, not only Niger, but also Mali and Burkina. That is Kamisa Kamara, senior advisor on Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. She is also a former Minister for Foreign Affairs, Minister of Digital Economy and Planning, 
as well as Chief of Staff to Mali's former president, Ibrahim Boubacar Kita, who was deposed in a coup in 2020. Remember how I said all of our speakers have a New Hampshire connection? She actually lived and worked in Concord, New Hampshire about 20 years ago and continues to visit the state and the friends she made while here. And if you look at or rather listen to the junta's initial declarations in all of these countries, Mali, Niger, Burkina, you will hear the same justifications being mentioned as reasons for the coup. My theory about that is that mentioning security as a justification or rather the deteriorating security situation as a justification for the coup does appeal to the international community and even domestically. And so it's an easy one to mention as a reason for the coup. But as I like to tell some of the folks I talk to, these military leaders have always been the military, whether under a president or under a junta. What actually prevented them from facing that jihadi threat under a democratically elected president? Some have mentioned a lack of ammunition sent to them by the civilian authorities, but that remains to be verified. Now, we want to be clear here that the economic, public health, educational, and other indicators in Niger still had a long way to go in terms of creating a stable, self-sustaining, and prosperous nation. By many indicators, and by most ranking systems, there are only a few areas where this country ranks in the top 100 of countries around the world. However, things had been looking up, according to Susan Fine, a 30-year veteran of USAID, the agency that manages most U.S. development and humanitarian aid. She oversaw USAID programs in Niger, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mauritania, and Senegal from 2013 to 2015, and held senior policy positions in Washington, D.C., Since leaving the Foreign Service several years ago, Susan has continued to be involved in international development, including serving on the board of the New Hampshire-based nonprofit Rain for the Sahel and Sahara, which works with rural and nomadic communities in Niger. From the mid-70s to uh, 2010, when they were under a variety of military authoritarian governments, no democratic transitions, they had many years of negative economic growth. Whereas in the last 10 years, when there's been a civilian government, the per capita income has increased 26%. And in recent years, the civilian government of Niger has had quite a bit of success in addressing the Islamic extremist movements that are pushing into the country, both from the Mali side, as well as the Boko Haram group that's pushing in from Nigeria. There's been a 53% reduction in civilian fatalities associated with Islamic groups in the last two years. So if we are not able to believe the military junta's explanation, imagine that. What are some of the more plausible answers for why a military leader who was sworn to protect the president decided instead to overthrow him? There are two main theories as to why General Chani actually launched this coup. The first one, which actually circulated in the media right after the coup, was that General Chani was being removed from his position as head of the presidential guard, and that he was very unhappy about that because he had held the position under President Bazou's predecessor for 10 years. He felt very entitled and just decided that this was reason enough for him to launch the coup. 
The second more plausible, I, I think, uh, reason that I have heard from my contacts in Niger was that President Bazoum's management was much more geared towards transparency of how public funds were spended. And President Bazoum actually started an audit of the army spending and General Chani was one of the army generals who was going to be accused of embezzlement. And to preempt that, he launched a coup. So I believe that the second version is the one that we should definitely consider as the more plausible one. Understanding why this coup occurs requires us to better understand the man who apparently led it. By all accounts, General Chiani is a military man through and through. He rose through the ranks of the Nigerian army over the course of 60 years, despite not coming from a well-connected family, as many of his colleagues have. He seemed, over the course of the years, to stay out of politics and even led several international peacekeeping missions in the region. Most interestingly, General Chiani is credited with stopping an attempted coup in 2021, just days before the current president, Mohamed Bazoum, was set to take power. In 2011, he was promoted to the head of the Presidential Guard, a special unit of 2,000 soldiers, and in 2018, he was promoted to general. Overall, from what I can tell, he was a respected general who preferred to remain in the background. However, he seems to have taken the lead here, and the junta is not talking in terms that indicate any intention to return governance to civilian rule. This is interesting, as many coup leaders at least pay lip service to democracy and civilian rule. They have not mentioned any of that. What we've seen is that they've closed their airspace, demonstrating potentially that they were ready to fight if the regional bloc ECOWAS were to launch a military intervention to remove them from power. That also indicates that they are there to stay. They've recently appointed a prime minister. Late yesterday, they've appointed government ministers. That clearly shows that they are there to rule on what terms that we don't know yet. Another interesting aspect of all of this is the response from the population to this military takeover. As mentioned, Susan is on the board of Rain for the Sahel and Sahara, an NGO based in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, providing on-the-ground programs to nomadic populations in Niger. I asked her how the local staff is faring in the days following the coup. It is our traditional break time. However, we have been in touch with staff and everybody is fine. And they're, I would say, remarkably sanguine about the situation. Of course, there have been some protests. There is a, a crowd that went to the French embassy. But if you read the reports of those carefully, it's not a big number of people. There's not a groundswell of support for this coup, at least right now. Probably the majority of the population, maybe they didn't love the current government, but I don't think that they saw it as completely incompetent and needing to be overthrown. And as I said, the data would support the opposite conclusion, in fact, that it has been a fairly effective government. And I think that there's also, even though you know Niger is a fairly 
inexperienced democracy, there is a lot of support for democracy in the country. A recent survey by Afrobarometer showed that more than half the population supports democratic processes. That led me to wonder about the rallies and shows the support that the junta has put together, which tend to show a lot of people cheering the military. What does this mean for the support on the ground? I think they're putting on a good show, and so have the previous juntas who come before them in Burkina, in Mali, and in Guinea. I think it's really hard to measure and to gauge the popular support of any juntas. It's not the number of people who demonstrate in the capital city that can actually tell you whether the junta leaders are popular or not. What I like to say is that, or remind people is that, well, President Bazoum was democratically elected two years ago. That was only two years ago, 24 months ago. So you could very well say that he had the support of the majority of the Nigerians, at least the ones who voted. Now, some arguments have actually say that elections are very fragile in African countries, that not a lot of people actually vote, and that presidents have a very rocky foundation to start with. That may be true, but still he had millions of Nigerians who actually went to vote for him. So he was a legitimate president and had the support of his people. He was able to form a government. He was able to put in place a solid program that was economic and also on the international scene. He was also able to work with international partners to position Niger as a country that was ready for investments. And I think he did a very good job at that. All the more evidence that the official junta line of this being for the good of the country is not true. In addition, by overthrowing the democratically elected government, General Chiani and his co-conspirators have placed millions, if not billions, of economic aid to the country in jeopardy. Many countries and international development programs have already announced suspension of aid, with many countries also announcing sanctions on the government and its self-imposed leaders. It is really important to understand what the implications of this suspension of aid to Niger are, what the implications are, because that 1.8 billion to 2 billion, depending on what source you use for your numbers, it amounts to about 40% of the government of Niger's budget. And most of that money is going for health services, education, agriculture, the things that the ordinary people in Niger need in order to have you know, a quality of life. Every Nigerian wants to be able to feed their kids. If their kids get sick, they want to be able to go to a, a clinic and, and get health services. And the donor funding that goes to Niger is predominantly in those sectors. So the 40% is the whole budget, right? And that includes the military part of the budget. But if you think of the implications of the World Bank, which has suspended its operations, U.S. government, which has not yet announced because we haven't officially determined that it's a coup yet, but if it does become apparent that it is a coup, then we will have to shut down you know, a number of programs. And then other donors, France, Germany, some of the other bigger donors have already announced suspensions of their aid. So the impact on the ordinary Nigerian will be very, very substantial in terms of the 
ability of the government to deliver health services, education, you know, help with agricultural development, also infrastructure projects. The U.S. government, through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, has a very large program to build agricultural infrastructure, particularly irrigation. Most of Niger is very dry, but there is the Niger River, and we've been helping them to build out the irrigation infrastructure so they can take advantage of that. Also helping to expand agricultural marketing and trade ability to access markets in coastal West African countries. There's a new program that was just recently signed that will improve the road and other transport infrastructure to help ship livestock and agricultural produce from Niger down to the coast. All of those projects will be suspended because of this. And so the aid suspension is going to have a very, very substantial impact on the government of Niger's ability to do what the population expects its government to do. If the coup leaders really had the best interests of the country in mind, they would not risk such a large amount of development aid. Now, it is important to note that humanitarian aid can continue to move forward, and most of the aid that has been suspended has direct ties to the military or government. However, as other countries in the region have shown, the security situation does not necessarily improve under military rule. However, even though humanitarian aid can continue, this is still not a good thing for the people in Niger. We are providing humanitarian assistance to Niger. The issue, though, is the humanitarian aid is just like a Band-Aid, and it targets the poorest part of the population who really cannot feed themselves, and it doesn't address the root causes of food insecurity and lack of delivery of health services and things like that. So humanitarian aid is a stopgap measure. It saves lives, but that's all. It doesn't change the situation in any fundamental way. So then the dilemma is, can we as the U.S. or other Western donor countries continue to help deliver services to the population without legitimizing the military government should that become the reality. And it is a very, it's a tricky balance because, you know, on the one hand, you certainly don't want to give an, an illegitimate government the ability to say, oh, see, you know, we're just as good. We provided, you know, these health services. We kept the schools running. But on the other hand, you know, it's the population who suffers when those things do not continue. And, you know, when it's a military government, even if people are dissatisfied, they don't have an ability to express that dissatisfaction through a democratic process. Overall, it seems that this will not be a good thing for the people of Niger if the coups in Mali, Guinea, and Burkina Faso are any indication. It does not look good for the region either. This is the fourth coup in Western Africa in two years, and the seventh if you broaden it to Western and Central Africa since 2020. The economic bloc of Western African states, or ECOWAS, seemingly has had enough of the rash of coups and has started to take a firm stance against Niger's military leaders. As of this recording, there is a real threat of a military intervention led by this regional bloc 
aimed at restoring President Bazoum to power. Hopes are for a diplomatic solution, but preparations are already underway to build a force of over 5,000 troops to intervene. First off, is ECOWAS within its rights to be making such preparations? So I think the ECOWAS was in its role when it threatened the military junta with a military intervention right after the coup. One of the many missions of the ECOWAS is to maintain stability in the West Africa region. And the ECOWAS has come under a lot of scrutiny and, and criticism for not being aggressive enough to impose a return to constitutional order when the coups happened in Mali, in Burkina, and in Guinea. Some observers have even accused the ECOWAS's lack of authority for favoring this spate of coups and encouraging it. And so I believe that because this Queen Niger was a surprise, that nobody within the ECOWAS or outside the ECOWAS expected Niger to fall into the hands of military leaders so quickly that the ECOWAS reacted almost out of fear, saying, we will intervene militarily. Now the ECOWAS has to face the reality of its own words and commitments to democracy. Several summits of heads of states have been held, even one today to discuss how the ECOWAS would intervene in the case of Niger. And we're coming back to this issue of diplomatic negotiations versus the use of force. And it looks like the diplomatic negotiation is really the priority that is being given to solving the situation in Niger. But I think the ECOWAS as an organization also has to evaluate what its leverage is really in this in this region and what its endgame is. And what would a military intervention mean for Niger and the wider region? The consequences would be disastrous for Niger, for the Sahel region, but also because a lot of voices within Niger, even civil society organizations, are voicing concerns about a possible military intervention, especially in a region that is facing such a dire humanitarian crisis. In addition, other countries in the region have committed themselves to supporting the military junta in Niger in the event of ECOWAS intervention. So there is a real threat of a much wider regional conflict involving several different countries, which would further destabilize Western Africa, cause an even bigger humanitarian disaster, and further displace millions of people. As is the case in many situations around the world today, the international community has to come to terms with whatever the least bad option is, which is yet to be determined. Another regional concern, based on the fact that the region has seen so many coups in the recent past, is the idea of the contagion effect. Or that because one coup was successful, other military leaders begin to think that they can do it in their own country. So I'm not too certain about the contagion effect. If we want to explore that contagion effect, we would have to speak directly to the coup leaders and figure out whether they have been in contact before the coup and whether they have been inspired by one another. But certainly the actions of the ECOWAS, or rather I would say the limitations of the ECOWAS, have demonstrated that there is a low cost for conducting a coup. 
And that may have driven the high number of coups that we've seen. The, the coup leaders definitely learn from one another, but they also learn from the reactions of the regional bodies and the international community. And in this case, we're clearly seeing the limitations of the ECOWAS to act on its promises, act on its anger, and act on its principles of no coups and stability in the region. My own personal opinion is that that is one of the motivations for the ECOWAS countries to come out more forcefully against this is because they don't want the coup contagion to spread any further. I mean, you have Nigeria, which is to the just to the south of Niger. And uh, of course, Nigeria has had coups and military governments in the past. And the current president of Nigeria, who is leading ECOWAS, and by the way, he only started his ECOWAS leadership three weeks ago. So the, the guy is, is having a baptism by fire. Anyway, I think that that is maybe part of the reason that they have come out so forcefully is they are concerned about further spread of these military takeovers. Taking a global view of the situation, geopolitics come into view as responses to the coup are considered. Of course, Niger has been a strong ally in the fight against extremism in the region, allowing the United States and France to host military bases in the country and working closely together to fight groups like Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS, affiliated groups throughout the region. However, the media has shown us a number of anti-Western, particularly anti-French images, as well as several pro-Russia, Putin, and Wagner group images. Do the people of Niger really prefer Russia to the West and democracy? I think we're making a mistake in the West by projecting our framework of thinking to what is actually happening in the Sahel. There is no anti-Western sentiment. There is a sentiment against the French Africa policy. Because France is so close to its former colonies, because France has been so much involved in the local politics of its former colonies, France is now being accused of anything and everything. And this is not too surprising. This was bound to happen. And again, the sentiment is really against French policy in Africa rather than against France. To support what I just mentioned, there are a lot of young people in this region who are queuing at the French embassy to get a visa to come to France, to either study in France, to come on vacation. In France, they all speak French. That's the language they express themselves in. But I don't see those young folks queuing at the Russian embassy to get a, a visa to go to Moscow. None of them speak Russian. None of them have gone to Moscow. I think it's being definitely blown up in the media because we understand this issue of great power rivalry between the United States, between China, between Russia, on the ground is being experienced very differently. It is the way France behaves in its former colonies and with its former colonies that's being decried. Now, I do not believe that there is a pro-Russian sentiment. Those Russian flags appear miraculously every time there is a camera on the streets 
of one of those capital cities, I think they're literally planted there as a PR move, which, I mean, you can't really blame the Russians for doing that. I don't believe that Russia has as much gravitas in the Sahel or in Africa than France, the United States, or the UK. So it's almost, to me, a problem that is being created in the West because we think of it that way. However, it does seem that Russia and China have been making inroads with certain communities and countries in Western Africa. Russia has used the grain shortages caused by its war in Ukraine and their ability to provide food assistance as a way to build relationships that have benefited them at the United Nations. China has utilized its Belt and Road Initiative and other levers to slowly peel away support for Taiwan across the continent. Today, Taiwan only has relations with one out of the 55 countries of Africa, despite having had relationships with 30 different countries at one point or another. As the U.S. and its Western allies consider their responses to the ongoing coup, they must consider the balance sheet on both sides. You know, that is always a very difficult question in in these situations, and one that I'm sure is being actively debated at the National Security Council right now. Understanding the difficult choices presented here, there is a real challenge to thinking about what can be done to move things forward in the region. How do we make a real impact while understanding that we do not want to legitimize an undemocratic government? For having worked on the Sahel and in the Sahel for a bit, I have to admit that looking at the region and at the macro level, looking at those coups, looking at how unstable, volatile the region is, how insecurity is pervasive in the region, it's really difficult to figure out what the right policy solution is or what the right policy recommendation should be made. And I strongly believe that we're not looking in the right place. There is this youth bulge that we used to talk about a lot a few years ago that somehow has fallen through the cracks and we seem to have forgotten about it. But there are millions of youth that are coming up right now in the Sahel region. And really, in terms of policy, the focus should be on them. How do we ensure that they have the right training, the right schooling, the right education, that they have the health necessary to build the right future for themselves? And this is where the international focus should be. If you have the youth that is being trained to have jobs, and if you accompany this job creation by, for example, supporting the private sector instead of the public sector, then you might actually develop a framework and a platform for a healthier country in all senses of the term. And we tend to really focus on the day-to-day crisis that we're seeing in the region. But these crises exist because you have a population that is in majority illiterate and really doesn't see a future for itself. So it's, I think, very easy to be frustrated in those types of environments when you know that, first of all, you cannot feed your kids, you cannot send them to school, and there's absolutely no future for them. This is why development aid is so critical to solving some of these key issues and why it is vital for the U.S. and its allies to continue to engage with countries in the region. Helping to solve economic, security, and governance issues will provide opportunities to mitigate ongoing issues within these countries, provide a better life for millions of people, and prevent them from turning to extremist and criminal groups. 
This leads us to why people should care about what happens in a country that many Americans know very little about. First of all, I think just the human level, which is, yes, it's, it's, a, it's far away. It's only 27 million people, but they are people. And they are people who have really just an incredibly challenging, difficult life, but that also have amazing potential. And we have seen this through some of the girls who brain supports to continue their education and, you know, the way that just a few more years of education can make such a difference in their ability to be productive citizens and, you know, raise healthy families. And so on a human level, caring about other people and giving them a little bit of help, to me, it just makes such a difference. And then you could also say, maybe from a ethical standpoint, um, Niger is one of the parts of the world that has been most affected by climate change and has contributed very little to the causes of climate change. And in fact, it's projected that by 2050, Niger will have more climate change related mortality than any other country in the world. And, and they definitely have been affected. You know, they're seeing more frequent droughts, more frequent flooding. And so, you know, at some level, the industrialized countries created this and the costs are being imposed on populations like in Niger who have very, very little ability to cope with those costs. And so I think at least the way I think about it, I think we also have sort of an ethical and moral obligation to help them uh, have a decent life. And then, you know, if you're not convinced by that, then you can start looking at more of the, you know, national security arguments. I mean, I think migration is a huge issue. And a lot of people think, oh, we don't have to worry about migration from Africa because we have the Atlantic Ocean between us and Africa. And it's true that up until now, Europe has, has um, been much more the focus of migration from Africa. But I read there are people from Africa, from the Democratic Republic of Congo and other countries in Africa who have made it come to the United States as undocumented immigrants. And I fully expect that with the exploding youth population in Africa, climate change, you know, all the challenges that are there it is going to grow. And so I think that we have a very strong incentive to do what we can to help countries be able to support their populations so that they don't, so they're not motivated to migrate. Also, so that they're not motivated, the young, particularly young men are not motivated to join extremist groups. You know, a lot of the reason that the Islamic extremists are able to recruit young people is because they don't have any other opportunities. And at least these extremists, they give them a purpose. It may be a, a terrible purpose, but it's a purpose. And I think that if we haven't learned by now that these extremist movements bleed, we should have learned that by now. And so I do think that there is a there are national security arguments in addition to the human ones.
Thank you so much for your interest in today's conversation. This is the first step in a long journey of better understanding the world and the issues driving it today. The ripples of change have to begin somewhere, and your impact on the world may seem small at times, but know that you do have a voice in all of this. Whether you are simply showing an interest in deeper global understanding by engaging with organizations like the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, voting for politicians who match your global priorities, or advocating for specific policies, all of this has an impact. We appreciate your support, interest, and engagement. You are the reason we continue this work. Thank you for all of your support. This has been The Global and the Granite State a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan is your host, director, producer, editor, creator, and just all-around great guy. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Drop It by Coma Media. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>